And turn with me not to Romans. 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. If you need Bibles, Ben is our special guest star. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2. We're not giving up on Romans. We're just getting to the best part. We're going to get Paul out of law school next week, Lord willing. And we're on to chapter 8. And we might be there a while because it's so good. But this week, and, and really, I mean since last Sunday, I've just had something on my heart to share, something I believe that the Lord has given me. And it's something that we, we, could, we could draw from almost any chapter in the New Testament, but it's something that we see so clearly here in the last words that we have from Paul. Paul writes to the Romans. Let's helicopter up and remind us of our timeline. Paul writes the letter that we've been studying 56 AD or so. When we're done studying Romans, we're headed back to Acts because we're studying the life of Paul. Romans is just a subset of that larger study. So we'll be back in Acts for Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, his journey to Rome, and that'll take Paul to around 60 A.D., where he's held under house arrest for two years, during which time he writes the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. By then, 62 A.D., give or take, 62 A.D., Paul's released. Shortly thereafter, he writes his first letter to Timothy, and he writes his letter to Titus. After that, things get a little fuzzy. He goes places, he does things, he does ministry. The timeline is a little uncertain, but by 64 A.D., a couple things are going on. The persecution of Christians has begun in earnest, and by 66 A.D., Paul is imprisoned. Could be before, it's not later than, 66 A.D. And sometime in the following 18 months, Paul writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, and he dies. He's executed by Nero sometime before June of 68. How do we know that? Nero dies in 68, and we know that Paul dies under Nero. 2 Timothy is counted among the pastoral epistles, but unlike 1 Timothy and Titus, it's an intensely personal letter. 1 Timothy and Titus, certainly personal, but at the same time, they're very situational, contextual. They're written by Paul to guys that he's sending out to certain places to do certain things. Timothy's headed to Ephesus. Paul, uh, Titus is headed to Crete. And so he's, he's girding them up, he's equipping them, he's speaking to them about, about those specific, unique situations. Second Timothy is a little different. Second Timothy is written not so much to Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, as it is to Timothy, Paul's brother in Christ. And it's less about how to shepherd a flock and more about how to follow Jesus, especially in troubling times. We've got a temptation, many of us. We have a tendency to put the pastoral epistles in a narrow box and forget about them. Sometimes not even read them. Well, I'm not a pastor. There's nothing there for me. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, that's not just wrong. It's dangerously wrong. Let me prove it to you. Go to the most pastoral part of the pastoral epistles, the qualifications for elders that we read in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Well, that just proves it doesn't apply to me. Not an elder, don't want to be an elder, never going to be an elder. Doesn't matter. 
If we look more carefully at what Paul is saying, he's not just talking about elders. In fact, he's really talking about all of us. He's saying, hey, here are some qualities, some attributes, some virtues that every believer in Jesus Christ should desire and pursue. Don't have anyone as an elder who doesn't exemplify them. Don't have anyone as an elder who isn't an example of the kind of believer we should all seek to be. All of which to say, Paul's exhortations, his advice, his counsel, his instruction in all the pastoral epistles is for all of us. But 2 Timothy, even more so. Because Paul's counsel here is untethered from any particular situation, any specific context. He's just writing to Timothy, who's out there in a world gone mad. A world that's getting crazier by the day. A world that's persecuting the church. A world in which it's getting harder and harder to be a Christ follower. Does any of that sound familiar? Paul's saying to Timothy, here's what I can tell you about the world that you're living in. Here's what I'd encourage you to remember and cling to as the days get darker. And among the things Paul shares with Timothy, among the things he imparts to him, is our text this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, Timothy, therefore, my son, because it's crazy out there, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me from among many witnesses, for 30 years now we've known each other, Timothy, the things that you've heard me teach Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's how the church propagates itself. You therefore, because you're going to be trying to do this in a world gone mad, in a world that hates Christians, must endure hardship. Expect it. Jesus promised it. You're going to endure it. I know you will, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare. Listen, Timothy. No one doing what you're... What, what you're signed up to do, what you're called to do, entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he might please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Don't get tangled up in the world, Timothy. Your life is about Jesus. If anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What are our rules? Follow Jesus. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Better translation, the farmer must first be hardworking before he partakes of the crops. You'll be rewarded, Timothy, in proportion to your devotion to Jesus in this life. Consider what I say, verse 7, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And Jesus, we ask that you would give us understanding now as we consider the application of these words to our lives. Living for Christ is almost never easy. We've lived in a bubble. We've lived in an anomaly this last century. We've had it easier than anyone in the history of the church ever, anywhere. But it's getting less true by the day, right? Just as it was getting harder and harder to be Timothy, to be a Christian in his world by the day. And Paul's instruction to Timothy, this isn't advice, this is instruction, this is commandment, applies just as much to us in our day. Paul said to Timothy, we just read, Timothy, stay the course. 
while everyone around you is losing their minds, keep yours and keep it stayed on Jesus. Cling to the gospel of grace, verse 1. Continue making disciples, verse 2. Don't let anyone distract you, verse 3 and 4. Make Jesus your priority. And sitting here on Sunday morning, that seems straightforward. That seems children's church. That seems obvious to us. And it is on the one hand, but on the other hand, when we leave this room, and I know you see what I see, when we leave this room all too often, all too quickly, the Great Commission takes a back seat to our preoccupation with the Great Reset. And our efforts to save our nation all too often take precedence over our passion for saving souls. Patrick, that's a false dichotomy. It would be if I were framing it as a dichotomy. I'm not. I'm talking about priority. I'm talking about precedence. I'm asking, where does our best time go? Where does most of our energy go? And I'm saying, and I think that you'll agree with me, too much, too often goes to too many of the wrong things. And the crazier things get, and I think that we all know enough to know we ain't seen nothing yet. The crazier things get, the greater the temptation will be to respond to crazy one of two ways. A, by pushing back with everything we have against everything that's happening in the world. Or two, hunker down and wait for Jesus to deliver us out of the world. And we're, we're seeing both in the body of Christ already, aren't we? With, with, with good and godly intentions, for sure, but taken way beyond what Jesus asked us to do, what Jesus taught us. We, we got to mobilize, we got to legislate, we got to campaign, we got to get our people in the office at all costs, we got to throw out the politicians who are responsible for what we're seeing by force if necessary. That, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the alternative response. You know what? Don't bother. The rapture's coming. It's close. It's got to be close. Have you read the news today? Look, this can't go on much longer. Don't bother shopping for Christmas. We won't be here. Don't buy green bananas. Get the small container of milk and spend a lot of time outside because you don't want to bang your head on the ceiling when the rapture comes. Okay, I, that was a little over the top. I, because because, because I, shouldn't, I shouldn't make light of this, and I don't mean to be insulting. Both of those perspectives have merit. Strive to change the world, be ready to leave the world. Those are both good ideas. The Bible, let's talk about the rapture, the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ. Jesus and the apostles tell us that we're supposed to be looking, seeking, anticipating his glorious appearing, expecting it at any minute, and there's no precondition for it. None. Nothing has to happen before the rapture. It could happen before I'm done this morning. Someone asked me this week, well, wait a minute, what about Isaiah 17.1? Doesn't that have to happen first? No. Isaiah 17.1, the prophecy of the destruction of Damascus. It's never happened. Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. It's never been destroyed the way that Isaiah prophesies. It will be. But we don't know when. It's a prophecy, but it's a prophecy completely untethered from the rapture. Could happen before, during, after. Here's another one. We talk a lot about the Gog and Magog invasion, don't we? 
Ezekiel 38 and 39, Turkey, Iran, Russia, and some other powers invade Israel. God turns back. That could happen before or during or after the rapture. Wait, 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 wait. I read left behind. It happens at the same time. Okay, just because the left behind books say so doesn't make it so. It might be. I'm not saying that's wrong. A lot of really smart, godly people think so. Chuck Smith, Chuck Missler, Tim LaHaye, obviously, Tommy Ice, Grant Jeffries, Hal Lindsey, all make a really good case for suggesting that the Gog-Magog invasion happens just before or simultaneously with the rapture. They might be right. But there are other teachers, people like Mark Hitchcock down in Oklahoma, who I think quite reasonably say, well, what do you do about Ezekiel 38:11, Which says at the time of the invasion that Israel is drawing peaceably in the land, unwalled villages without bars or gates. Now, now there's a response to that question, and there's a response to the response, and there's a response to the response to the response. My point in bringing it up isn't to take a side. And my point in bringing it up is not to say that the rapture isn't imminent. It is. My point is that the rapture is more imminent than we can discern from current events. We can't be sure what any given event or development means. We can't use the newspaper to reliably judge how close we are. Let me... Let me, let me prove that to you or demonstrate that to you. A few years ago, Turkey began pivoting away from NATO toward Russia. And, and pastors, myself included, said, okay, here we go. That coalition is getting lined up. That three-nation axis, Russia, Iran, Turkey, things, things are going to get interesting. And we, we inferred that the rapture must be closer, okay? But since Putin invaded Ukraine, Turkey has backed off a little bit. I mean, not dramatically, but a little. Does that mean that the same logic would dictate, well, then the rapture is further? No. The rapture is always imminent. The rapture is always happening at any time. And current events do nothing to change that, to hyperfixate on them, to try to squeeze prophetic implications out of them is to miss the point. What's the point? The point is be ready. Jesus could come back at any time. But Patrick, didn't Jesus tell us to watch and know the signs of the times? Yes, yes, he did. Why did he tell us that? Not so we would know the day or the hour. Not so we would know when he's coming back, so that we would be reminded he is coming back, and it could be today. But what does Jesus tell us to do until he comes back? Obsess over current events? Listen to six different prophecy podcasts every week? Look at four different church services with pastors who do prophecy updates in case one of them forgets something or misses something. Listen, I know some of the people who produce those prophecy updates. It's one of the reasons I don't, because really good guys do. They would tell you that hyperfixating on this is the wrong response. One of the sharpest prophecy minds I know is Jay McCarl. 
He's a Calvary pastor in Washington. If you don't know the name, you know the guys he hangs out with. He did a documentary a couple years ago with Jack Hibbs, with J.D. Farag, with Amir Savadi. It was called Before the Wrath, and it's worth watching. It's about the times that we live in. It's about the pre-tribulation season that we're living in. But Pastor Jay, about the time this was released, had this warning for his fellow Calvary pastors. He said, be careful, fear is physically addicting. Fear is physically addicting. Adrenaline, endorphins, fight or flight, which is why fear is more engaging than good news. It pumps us up and our brains love it. As prophecy-oriented news junkies, fear can hold us in an adrenaline endorphin high and can make us dealers to our addicted congregations. This is why we must never go off topic lest we and our people be led by the frenzy of, quote, experts, unquote. We must never go off topic. What's our topic? Jesus. Jesus tells us, Paul just reminded us, be strong in a deep and well-studied understanding of exactly what's happening in the world. No, he says be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And the things that you've heard from me impart to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. We're not supposed to be fear dealers. We're here to be grace dealers. Jesus could have raptured us home at the moment of our salvation. We know this, right? When we accepted Jesus, when our sin problem was done the way that Paul has been talking about in Romans, Jesus could have said, hey, come on home, second mansion on the right. At that moment, there was nothing left separating us from the God who created us. But Jesus didn't bring us home, not yet. He's left us here. Why? Because not everybody knows. Not everybody speaks the name Jesus. But we're living in the last days, Patrick. Yeah? Question for you. When did the last days start? When Jesus ascended to heaven. If that doesn't make sense, jot down some verses. If I, if I say that the last days have been going on for 2,000 years and, and that wars with what you think you know, look at Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Look at 1 Peter 4, 7 and James 5, 8. Because Peter, Paul, James, and the author of Hebrews all believed while they were writing that they were living in the last days. Which means Paul's exhortation to Timothy to, to stay on mission, to keep the main thing the main thing, is precisely and exactly relevant to you and I. We're in the same season Deeper into it, yes, but the rules haven't changed. We're not special. We don't have a unique playbook for ministry. The same thing Paul, Paul tells Timothy applies to us. Because here's the thing. The world isn't going mad. It's been mad for a long, long time. And every generation since Jesus 
including Paul's generation. He writes about it in Thessalonians. Every generation since Jesus has been convinced he would return in their lifetime. Every generation. The pastors who discipled me, the pastors who led me to Christ and, and discipled me in Christ were utterly and completely convinced Jesus would return in their lifetime. People ask, why didn't Pastor Chuck have a better plan for transitioning the Calvary movement after he died? He was utterly certain he wouldn't. <laughs> but here's the thing. It didn't stop him or others like him. It didn't stop them from fulfilling the ministry to which God had called them. And I'm really glad, because if they had been distracted the way a lot of the church is distracted today, I might not be here. I might not be here teaching, you might not be here listening, we might not be here together worshiping. Because people might have been entangled in the affairs of this world. Too busy doing other things to speak Jesus to us. I'm glad they observed the signs of the times, but I'm really glad that instead of letting it persuade them to sit on the sidelines and watch while the world burned... It drove them to evacuate as many people as possible out of the world, including us. Saving some by compassion, others by fear, like Jude says. Why? Because they knew every day could be the last day they'd get to. All of which I think is such an important application of our text this morning. Don't get entangled in the affairs of this world with what's happening. What's really happening. What's happening behind what's happening? What's the truth of what's happening behind what's happening? And when you know that, you only think you know what's happening. It's like eating Pringles. They, and, and the answers, whatever they are, they're, they're going to be interesting, but they're almost for sure not relevant. Not really, because whatever the answers are, it's not going to change the mission. It's not going to change the mandate. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Yeah, the world around you is, is, is in, is in, a, is in a, a, a cyclone. Storms, hurricanes, chaos, confusion. The mission doesn't change. And that brings me to my second point. Started off by saying I'm watching the church respond two ways to the craziness of the world, two misguided ways. The first is count on being delivered from it. Get that rapture practice in. <laughs> the, second, the second is to make it our mission to try to fix it. That's another way we can get entangled in the affairs of this world. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's going to poke some of you, warning. But I'm going to stand on verse 7. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. This past week, the Uvalde School District, Uvalde, Texas, the site of the horrific school shooting back in May, this week they announced they're suspending their entire police department. Another chapter in the finger-pointing, blame-shifting, scapegoating stuff that, that follows every tragedy like this. And, and I don't know who's right or who's wrong. What I know is that the finger-pointing started the day the shooting happened. Within hours, the news was filled with talking heads on the left saying, gun control, gun control. It wouldn't have happened if gun control... On the other hand, my, my email inbox and my social media stream was filled with talking heads from the right. We need your time. We need your money. We need your, vo we need your voice. Pastor, pastor, pastor. You've you got to get your people to, to, to sign up and enlist and, and, and put all their time and energy into defeating gun control. 
Both sides missed the point. Like by a mile. Patrick, what are you talking about? Gun control is an infringement of our liberty. And it, and it starts there, but, but you understand, right, the right to bear arms is the backbone of the Constitution. If they take our guns, we can't defend our, our other freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship. A well-armed populace is essential to a democratic society. I mostly agree. Look, I'm a gun owner. I live in a constitutional carry state, and sometimes I take advantage of that right. I'm not right now. Because I'm, I'm facing, people say, do you carry on Sunday? No, I'm facing the wrong way. <laughs> you do not want me face, I'm not that good a shot. <laughs> if God forbid, you know. But, but, but I, the thing is, I believe in the Second Amendment. And I believe gun control doesn't work. And I believe that if you don't believe that, you should spend a weekend in Chicago sometime. <laughs> but when people ask me to give time, and money to that cause, my answer is no. Put it on the ballot, I'll vote for it. Put a candidate in front of me, I'll, I'll back him. Put a petition in front of me, I'll sign it. If people ask me what I think, I'll tell them. I might tell them if they don't ask me. But I'm probably not going to do much more than that. Why? It's not why I'm here. That's not why you're here. Jesus could come back at any time. We have to assume that he is. Which means we don't have time to make things like the Second Amendment a priority. The Second Amendment is not our ministry. We're here to prioritize something much more important than that. And I'll tell you what I know. Not what I believe, not what I think, what I know. The right government doesn't free people. And the wrong government doesn't enslave people. The right government doesn't free people. The wrong government doesn't enslave people. Sin enslaves people. Jesus frees people. At the end of Jesus' 40 days in the desert, Satan takes him up on an exceedingly high mountain. Matthew 4, verse 8. Shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all the governments of the planet. And he says, all of these things are yours. You can rule and reign right now. Just bow down and worship me. Jesus said no. He said no because worship is for the Father alone. And because all the kingdoms of the world couldn't do what Jesus came to do. Only the cross could do that. And all the kingdoms of the world couldn't do what we're here to do. Only telling people about the cross can do that. Everything I've read about the Uvalde shooting, it was going to happen, gun control or no. It was going to happen whether teachers were armed or not, whether the police response was different or not. Could the death toll have been reduced? I don't know, quite possibly, it sounds like. Would the shooting have been prevented altogether? It would not have. Only one thing could have. His name's Jesus. Everything I've read, Salvador Ramos, the, the shooter who perpetrated this, this, this horrific act, Loner. No church, no friends. Lived with his grandma. No father figure in his life. What would have made a difference? Jesus. What could have brought Jesus into his life? Jesus' people. Embracing him, loving him, speaking Jesus to him, making him a priority. And here's where you have to hang with me. 
If I lost you when I started talking about guns, come back. If you tuned out, tune back in. Because my point really doesn't have a lot to do with guns. I'm using Uvalde and the issue of gun control as an illustration of a larger point. Gun control is a specific example of a general principle, a Jesus principle, and the principle is this. We're not here to change America. We're here so Jesus can use us to change Americans, to change their hearts and their lives and their eternities. And I say that as someone who loves this country. I studied this country in school. My undergraduate major was American history. People laughed at me. They said, you really want to study the same 200 years over and over and over again? I did, and I do, and I still do, because it's riveting. The more I study American history, the more I'm convinced God shed his grace on thee and on me. I, I do not have a problem with American exceptionalism. In fact, I believe it. I think we can take it too far, but I don't think we can deny it. I think Madison was a genius. I think the Constitution of our nation is, is brilliant. But all of that said and all of that being true, we're not here to recover an America we lost. We're here to help people recover a relationship with the Creator that they lost. We're not here to move our country back to what it was. We're here to move the church back to its first love. We're here to cling to the gospel, and we're here to make disciples. Not disciples of our party or our politics, disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, that, that's, that's your job, pastor. <laughs> Except, no, what did we say when we turned to 2 Timothy? The pastoral epistles aren't just for pastors. Especially if you turn to Matthew 28. Pastoral epistles aren't just for pastors, especially if you consider what Paul is saying here is just redux of what Jesus said at the end of his ministry. Yeah, Paul ripped Jesus off. <laughs> all, Paul, all Paul's best stuff he got from Jesus. Matthew 28. When you get there, look at verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Amen. We just read that. But seeing it again, seeing Jesus say it first, underscores that's not just a commandment to pastors, it's to all of us. Jesus wasn't talking to the apostles when he said that. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, that he was on a hill talking to a crowd of 500. He was talking to the church. And he's telling the church the same thing Paul told us. The things you've heard from me, Jesus just said, the things you've heard from me, Pass them on to others. Teach others to follow them. Teach others what they mean. Make disciples. Uh, Patrick, he might not be talking to apostles, but he says go. So he's talking to missionaries. And I'm not a missionary. I'm a homebody. Except that's a bad reading. Go is not the imperative here. It's not the order Jesus is given. I, I get, you know, first glance, first word, it looks like it. And we get all the mission organizations that put go in their name. But go isn't the imperative voice. It's a subordinate clause. 
What Jesus is saying is, because I have the authority, verse 18, therefore, make disciples. Therefore, it, in English it's in a different order, but therefore joins that sentence with the sentence that came before. I've got the authority to tell you this, so I'm telling you this, Jesus says. As you are going, make disciples. Go isn't an order, it's an assumption. That, that after Jesus ascends, the disciples aren't going to hang out on the top of the mountain waiting for him to come back. They're going to go. They're going to go places. They're going to do things. They're going to work. They're going to live lives. They're going to go to school. They're going to shop. As you're doing those things, as you're going, as you're living, be making disciples. Jesus says to all of us. That gets uncomfortable, so some people take refuge in Mark's gospel because Mark articulates it differently. He says, preach the gospel to every living creature. Well, you know, I tell people about Jesus sometimes, not never. I'm doing my part. What we forget when we think like that, if we think like that, discipleship is how the gospel gets preached to every living creature. It's how the gospel is spread. It's how the gospel is shared. It's how the Great Commission is fulfilled. Remember the checkerboard example. Visualize a checkerboard, eight by eight grid, right? Lower left-hand corner, visualize a grain of rice on that square. Move it over one, it's now two. Move it again, it's four, eight, 16, 32, 64. Eight squares across, 256. Move it up to the second row, 5, 12, 10, 24. Keep going and going and going through the 64 squares on an eight by eight grid. When you get to the 64th square, you have a pile of rice the size of Mount Everest. I'm not speaking figuratively. I don't mean you got a really honking big pile of rice. <laughs> I mean, literally, if you do the math, you have a pile of rice the size of Mount Everest. Because that's how exponents work. What's the point? The point is introduce someone to Christ. And for the next four months, walk with them. Talk to them about how to read, how to pray, how to share their faith, how to give, how to serve, how to, what, the importance of fellowship and community. Live life with them. Show them Jesus. Let them see Jesus in you. Three or four months later, you pick it up with somebody else, and they pick it up with someone else. So instead of two, there's now four. And impart to that person the things you know about Jesus, the things that you know from Jesus, the things that you've learned walking with Jesus. Impart them to that person. Three or four months later, do it again. Three or four months later, do it again. Population of the world is 8.5 billion people. If two friends tell two friends, tell two friends, tell two friends every three to four months, you get to 8.5 billion in just over 10 years. Is that an idealized scenario? Of course it is. But the point is making disciples is how we bring the gospel to every living creature. It's the only way we can. Great Commission doesn't work if we relegate disciple making to a select few. And we're not supposed to. It's a command given to all of us. First thing Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, follow me. Uh, follow you and do what, man? <laughs> Everything the Father gave me to do and nothing that the Father didn't give me to do. Follow me as I worship the Father and live for his pleasure. Follow me as I share the gospel. Follow me as I make disciples, starting with you guys. Follow me as I invest in other people's lives. Follow me as I speak Jesus. Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, follow me. He says to us, follow me. Paul echoes that commandment because he keeps stealing from Jesus. He says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. 
as I live for his pleasure, as I share the gospel, as I make disciples. Paul says what Jesus says to all of us, follow him. He says it to all of us. It's not an option. It's not an add-on. It's not like buying a car where you got the base model and then you can upgrade to the V8 or the heated seats or the tow package. No, the base model is follow him. More and more, the church is buying into the lie that believing on Jesus Christ is the big deal. Following him, well, that's, that's optional. Well, you know, some people dedicate their lives to him, but, you know, they're radical. They're, they're super saints. They're, they're elite. That's not for everybody. Someone forgot to tell Jesus that. Because you never see him, you never see him make a distinction between believers and followers. Never spoke of it, never recognized it. In Jesus' mind, there wasn't such a thing as a believer who wasn't a follower. You were following him or you weren't. Same time he says to Peter and Andrew, believe on me, is the time that he said, follow me. Follow me and be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples. That's where the 21st century church is failing. We bail out after people raise their hands, after people pray a prayer. Well, I brought them to church, listened to them pray, invited them to stay, done my share. No, that's not where the job ends. That's where, that, that, that's where it starts. Because as soon as somebody gives their life to Christ, the warfare kicks up three big notches. You've experienced this. You've lived this. As soon as you start to follow Christ, your heart becomes a battlefield. It's God versus Satan. It's spirit versus flesh. And people need people to help them understand who they are in Christ, to claim their identity in Christ, to work out and walk out the reality of their salvation in Christ. To learn what it is to be being filled with the Spirit, to rest in Him, to trust in Him. It takes time. And people need the body of Christ during that time. They need us to help them grow and mature as Christ followers, who will help grow and mature people as Christ followers, who will help grow and mature people as Christ followers. It takes time. In fact, if we do it right, if we take it seriously, it doesn't leave time for anything else. It doesn't leave time for anything that's not from Christ and for Christ. The more we follow Christ, the more we should find ourselves recognizing and resisting and downright resenting anything that competes with Christ for our attention, our, our attention and our affection. Resenting anything that wars with our dedication to the gospel. Resenting anything that interferes with our commitment to make disciples. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't continue following Jesus. Sometimes we don't prioritize investing in others. Sometimes we ignore the command to make disciples. And, and we manage to sound really spiritual in the process. You know, I just... Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm called to do that. I think that would be, you know, striving for me. How so? I, I just don't think it's God's call in my life, you know? Jesus thought it was his call in everybody's life. Yeah, I don't think I can. Why not? I, I'm just not trained enough. You know, I'm not smart. I don't know enough. The thing, is, the thing is, you can. We all can. 
I know for a fact that you can. And the way I know that, the way I can say that, is I trust God's word, and God tells us that we can. Look again at the end of Matthew 28. Jesus says, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. And, and again, the English doesn't really capture the fullness. Jesus says, every moment of every hour of every day, I'm with you. With us to do what? Live the life he purchased for us. Fulfill the ministry he's given us. That's one of the things we learn as disciples. One of the things that becomes more and more clear as we follow Christ He doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. And the way that works is the Christian life isn't about us. It's about God and others. It's about Jesus living through us to reach others and grow others. You you can't? Look at who Jesus started with. Peter. Jesus gets so frustrated with Peter, he says, Satan. And Peter still doesn't figure it out. He goes on to deny Jesus three times. That's who Jesus starts with. James and John, they're not from our tribe, Jesus. Can we nuke them? (laughs) Come on. Let me call down fire from heaven. Come on, please. Please, Jesus. It'd be awesome. Thomas, yeah, he's risen from the dead, right. (laughs) What's Gail's line? Yeah, these aren't aren't apostles. These are C plus B minus apostles. But Jesus chose him for a reason. He chose him to encourage us. Because guys like that, guys who started off as flawed and confused as anyone here, turned the world upside down in less than a generation. And they did it in a time way crazier than anything we've experienced yet. How? They kept following Jesus. They didn't let themselves get entangled with the affairs of the world. Jesus called and they followed. It cost them, but they followed. They refused to be distracted by lesser things. They just followed. They didn't obsess over prophecy. Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. They said, okay. They left it at that and turned their attention to the things they were supposed to know, the things they were supposed to be about, Christ and him crucified, and that's it. They weren't obsessing over prophecy. They weren't trying to turn back history or make the world safe for democracy. The only way they hoped to change the world is the only way the world has ever been changed, one heart at a time. Those guys were way too busy starting a revolution to dabble in anybody's civil war. Let's end where we began. You therefore, my son and my daughters, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing and tell people about the main thing. The things you've heard from me among many witnesses, the things that I've been talking about for the 30 years we've known each other, Timothy, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach us teach others also. Impart them, pass them on, speak them, show them. And yet, that's going to entail hardship. Jesus promised that. You should expect that. It's part of what it is to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, and you shouldn't either. You should be all about pleasing him who enlisted you as a soldier. That's Jesus. 
If anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. What's the rule? Make Jesus number one. Make Jesus number one on a list of one, not number one on a list of ten. It's about Jesus. It's only about Jesus, and that's the only rule. The hardworking farmer, the farmer must first be hardworking before he partakes of the crops. Timothy, you will be rewarded in proportion to your devotion. But in the meantime, consider what I say. May the Lord give you understanding in all things, and may the Lord give you power to walk in his ways. Jesus, we ask for that power. We remind ourselves we have your presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. With your presence comes peace. But we ask for your power. We ask for your wisdom that we would be able to recognize what is good and what is truly great. What is not sin and what is following you. Lord, give us wisdom to know. Give us faith to choose. Protect and defend us. Go before us. Glorify yourself through us as we continue following you as the world goes dark, as people go mad. Teach us to cling to you alone and to invite people along for the ride.